thank you for joining us for Talking Sleep, a podcast of the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Seema Kosla, Medical Director of the North Dakota Center for Sleep in Fargo. Obesity hypoventilation syndrome can be challenging to manage. Obtaining the appropriate device for each patient is often complicated by insurance requirements and seemingly endless red tape. Previous guidelines have indicated that CPAP may be as effective as bi-level PAP or NIV. However, this doesn't apply to all of our patients. How can we better identify those who may require more advanced treatment modalities while also ensuring that those treatments do not cause undue financial hardship for our patients? Here to help us understand this better is Dr. Babek Moklesi. He is the J. Bailey Carter Endowed Professor of Medicine and is Chief of the Division of Pulmonary, Critical Care, and Sleep at Rush University. He has both clinical and research expertise in the field of sleep disordered breathing and hypoventilation syndromes. His clinical research program has explored the impact of positive airway pressure therapy on pulmonary hypertension in patients with obesity hypoventilation syndrome. Thank you for joining us today. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So it's been a while since we've chatted about obesity hypoventilation. So tell me what the current guidelines say. Yeah, so um, that's a great starting point. Uh, the current guidelines that was sponsored by the American Thoracic Society uh, were published in 2019. And um, in that guideline, a group of experts, um, you know, we got together and with the goal of trying to look at the evidence and come with the best recommendations. And we tackled five questions. Um, first question was, what is the best way of screening for obesity hypoventilation syndrome in our patient population, particularly patients that come to the sleep clinics mm. where you suspect obstructive sleep apnea. And, and the subsequent questions were, is PAP therapy, you know, CPAP or bi-level or any other form of PAP therapy useful in this patient population? And the next question was, is CPAP better compared to non-invasive ventilation? And then we tackled a complex question related to how best to deal with patients who are hospitalized with acute and chronic hypercapnic respiratory failure due to obesity hypoventilation when it comes time for discharge from the hospital. And the last question tackled the subject of obesity, which is, of course, is included in the name of the syndrome, and it's a big contributor. Wow, so that's important. Um, I love that you hit the hospitalized patients because I know that's a big pain point. So, so let's talk about these one at a time. So how should we be utilizing those serum bicarb levels? I mean, is this something we should order in every patient with a BMI above 30? How should we use this? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question because, you know, the way we look, the, the way the literature um, has explored this question is essentially one that many of these patients who come to our clinics happen to have had a serum bicarbonate level you know, measured at some point in the recent past. Ah, okay. And by recent past, I mean it could be a few months ago, up to a year ago, and um, and and the, go the the beauty of it is that if that information is readily available to you, can you you know put it to use and mm. make help you make some decisions? So you can use a bicarb that's a year old. Yes. The, uh, well, huh. I mean, it's not ideal, but. <laughs> So all the work Fair. that we done, for example, was looking at, um, you know, serum bicarb in the last year 
because the idea is that most of these patients have had sleep disorder breathing and obesity for a while. It's not like they suddenly develop yeah. in a short period of time. And the way we looked at it is, is there any threshold that increases the risk of obesity hypoventilation syndrome? And our work from years ago uh, in mid-2000s and uh, other groups confirmed our work has shown that if your serum bicarbonate level, um, which the real term of it is total serum CO2, and in most electronic medical records, is not labeled as bicarbonate, it's total mm. serum CO2. If that level is below 27 millimoles per liters or milliequivalents per liter, um, the chance of having clinically significant hypercapnia on arterial blood gases is quite remote. Uh -huh. So it's a nice test to help you feel confident and rule out the disease. But does it then necessarily rule it in if yeah, it's elevated? That, that's the challenge. Uh -huh. <laughs> our data and the summary that we did for the ATS guidelines uh, shows that is highly sensitive. And it, if it's below 27, it helps you rule out. Okay. But if it's above 27, it doesn't help you rule in. It's a coin toss. But there's one caveat there. Uh, and I think this is where we have to be careful with dogma. Um, when you look at somebody's serum bicarbonate level on you know, chemistry panels from blood tests, it's important to contextualize it with the kidney function. Because if a patient has you know, chronic kidney disease and they've lost the ability to retain bicarb as a response to chronic hypercapnia, then you, it's not fair to use serum bicarbonate as a as a screening tool. Similarly, I would argue, you know, as I said earlier, if your level is above 27, going back to your question, does it help you to rule in? And mm -hmm. I said it's a coin toss, but you have to take that, there's a gradation. For example, if somebody's serum bicarbonate is 28, I would say it's a coin toss. Okay. But if somebody's serum bicarbonate is 35, now we're uh. talking about it's a different ballgame. Then your clinical suspicion for obesity hypoventilation goes up. But at the end of the day, it's a good test to rule out, not to rule in. If you want to okay. rule in, you want to confirm it with an arterial blood gas. Oh, you do. Okay. So it's not it's not sufficient on its own. You you still need the confirmation blood test. I uh, do. Blood gas. Yes. Okay. Okay. So you talked about the the kidney function. So then you would utilize it in somebody with normal kidney function? Yeah, that's what I would advocate for because patients who develop CKD Sometimes they lose that ability to reabsorb bicarb, yeah. you know, uh, when it gets filtered in the proximal, you know, you know, in the glomerulus. Usually, most of the bicarb gets reabsorbed in the proximal tubules in the kidney, and if they don't have that capacity because they have, you know, progressive chronic kidney disease, then they may not be able to mount a elevation in their serum bicarbonate level. And I think that's a really important point because then you don't want, just want to glance at it and say, oh, no, this can't be it, right? Because there may be something else impacting their ability to 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 get that bicarb right, above 27. Right. Okay, it, that makes sense. It should not okay. be viewed as a single value. I think it should be contextualized with the kidney function. Yeah, that's fair. And I love how you said that we can't just be dogmatic about it. And I think that that's sometimes what happens with guidelines, right? Like they're meant to be guidelines. <laughs> they're not meant to be yes, like yes. handcuffs. Exactly. So, so let, let's talk about, about PAP in this population. 
right? Because there was something a while ago that said CPAP was as good as, right, for non-invasive for obesity hypoventilation syndrome. But is this universally true? Yeah, that's a great point because that, you know, sometimes after you write these guidelines as a group, you worry that if people are taking it to the extreme of making a dogma. <laughs> right. But, but along those lines, you know, um, the the data, there are several clinical trials that are smaller in size and had short-term follow-up. And by short-term, I mean one month, two months, three months. And there's one large clinical trial uh, that I participated in with my colleagues in, in Spain uh, that followed, it was a larger cohort randomized clinical trial that followed close to 200 patients with OHS who were randomized to CPAP or non-invasive ventilation, and they had follow-up for three years. Oh, wow. Okay. And uh, in that study, and the, the caveat is that that study showed that CPAP and non-invasive ventilation were not different. Now, the non-invasive ventilation mode used in that study was volume-targeted pressure support, kind of like your AVAPs or your IVAPs. Okay. Now, um, but the important point is that these patients were all ambulatory. They had not experienced a recent exacerbation or hospitalization. Oh. So, so that's, I think, where we have to be careful. That study showed that if you have, if you're an ambulatory patient, and you haven't had a recent exacerbation or hospitalization. And in addition to your obesity hypoventilation, you have severe obstructive sleep apnea, meaning your apnea hypopnea index is above 30. Uh, then when they got randomized to CPAP versus volume targeted pressure support, which is a form of NIV, non-invasive ventilation, there was no difference in outcomes in terms of and outcomes being changes in blood gases over time, um, Airport sleepiness scale, six-minute walk distance, you know, quality of life, mm. and exacerbations or readmissions or death. And this is a three-year follow-up. Um, so, but you know, going back to your question, does that apply to every single patient with OHS? And I would argue no, because the average patient enrolled in the Pickwick trial, the one I'm talking about, mm -hmm. that was published a few years ago. On average, the body mass index was around 42, 43. Okay. So now imagine you have a patient in clinic who has a BMI of 75 ah. and has significant hypoxemia and hypercapnia. Granted, they're ambulatory and they're not hospitalized, but those patients, one could argue that, that that's not a typical patient that was enrolled in the Pickwick trial. And there's a high chance that that patient may not respond equally to CPAP versus non-invasive ventilation. So then do they have to fail CPAP first? Well, yes. I mean, right now, at least if you practice sleep medicine in the United States, uh, you know, the way the reimbursements are set by Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services and most private insurance companies kind of follow their lead is why do you want to give somebody bi-level or other advanced non-invasive ventilation modalities if you haven't proven to me that CPAP failed. So yeah, typically you want to prove that CPAP didn't work. But to be honest, many of these patients, you can demonstrate that in the sleep lab while you're doing a split night polysomnogram. You do your mm -hmm. baseline diagnostic portion, you put them on CPAP and you realize you're having a hard time oxygenating and ventilating them. 
And then typically, if there is enough time, they get switched to some form of non-invasive ventilation. So it's a little bit different though, right? Compared to when you have to demonstrate CPAP intolerance to get bi-level PAP for straight up OSA. Now we're Correct. demonstrating that this is ineffective therapy, yeah, right? Yeah, we're talking more of um, CPAP failing to resolve, you know, the the gas exchange problem. That profound hypoxemia persists, significant hypoventilation persists, despite resolving OSA. So you you maintain the airway open with CPAP, and the patient is breathing, but most likely what's happening in these patients is that the tidal volumes are too small mm -hmm. to achieve adequate ventilation and oxygenation. With that said, I would argue that there is a subgroup of patients where you put them on CPAP and you resolve the obstructive sleep apnea component of OHS, but some hypoxemia and hypoventilation persist. But many of these patients over time, mm -hmm. if they get CPAP, may get better. You know, and that's what what I always tell people because in the Pickwick trial where we were randomizing people to CPAP versus non-invasive ventilation, if you were randomized to CPAP and you failed CPAP titration because you know hypoxemia and hypercapnia yeah. persisted, you still got CPAP. Okay. Because you were randomized to CPAP from the get-go, it was intentional okay. treat, and at the end of the day, you know, after many months of follow-up up to three years, every single patient had three years of follow-up. There was no difference as a group. Huh. And that's the, that's, I think that's a challenge for practitioners. If I have a situation where CPAP has resolved the OSA, but I still have some hypoxemia and hypercapnia, do I still pull the trigger on giving non-invasive ventilation? Mm -hmm. I give them CPAP, let them use CPAP for a few weeks, couple of months, and reassess with, say, nocturnal oximetry or something like that. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the area where it's still a little nebulous of what, what is the best course of action. Well, and then sort of in the background is that time pressure for when the rental converts to purchase, right? Exactly. There's the patient sort of feeling like, oh, <laughs> this is taking forever and I still don't feel better, right? I just feel like there's a lot of things to juggle with this and a lot of things to consider. I mean, even even that whole idea of you bring them in and you demonstrate that CPAP isn't adequate, um, what happens if insurance doesn't allow you to bring them in, right? So then you're navigating autopap and oximetry and all of this stuff at home. Indeed. I mean, that that is a major challenge because many times, you know, we as physicians want to do what's best for our patients, but sometimes, you know, there is red tape, as you said earlier, mm. and um, insurance limitations that we just can't do whatever we think is best for the patient. So in those scenarios, yes, you're stuck sometimes with doing your best with auto CPAP, with a reasonable pressure settings, and hoping that the patient is able to adhere to it, and then eventually looking at CPAP downloads and maybe doing an oximetry while on CPAP to demonstrate that at least the oxygenation portion of gas exchange has improved. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's that's another important point, right? Because then you can't tell if they're hypercapnic and they're hypoventilating. You just know that they're hypoxic. <laughs> so, right. you know. Right. So then, are there some patients though that you can look at, like your like your patient with a BMI of seventy five? Are there patients that you can identify and say, you know what, I don't even want to do this. I want to go straight to you know NIV. Unfortunately, well, I mean, in all honesty, I would say I can, but I don't mm. have any data to support it. <laughs> 
<laughs> you know, that's where the art of medicine comes into yep. play, right? Yep. Your man's judgment. And I think sometimes it's um, hard to put that on paper and get data on it. But I think all of us as experienced clinicians, when you see a polysomnogram of a patient like that and you see the, the profound hypoxemia and the very elevated transcutaneous CO2s, you kind of know in your in the heart of your heart so that this patient is not going to get better with just CPAP. Mm -hmm. Yeah, those are the ones where when you're looking at the raw data, like for me, I'm like, oh my gosh, it's making me short of breath. Exactly. <laughs> you need to... <laughs> exactly. You start, your heart starts skipping a yes. beat. Yes. <laughs> like how long is this going to last? Holy buckets. Exactly. Exactly. So what is ONMAP? So ONMAP is, um, it stands for Optimal Non-Invasive Ventilation Medicare Access Promotion or ONMAP. Mm. Um, and it's a group of... Um, of technical experts um, uh, that was put together and led by my colleagues, Peter Gay of Mayo Clinic and um, Bob Owens of University of California in San Diego. And it was an effort uh, that was sponsored by the American College of Chess Physicians, American Academy of Sleep Medicine, the ATS, and the Association of Respiratory Care, American Association of Respiratory Care. So it was a multi-society panel of technical experts in a variety as variety uh, of aspects of uh, conditions that need non-invasive ventilation. For example, hypercapnic COPD, hypoventilation syndromes, um, neuromuscular disease, mm. as a few examples. And the purpose of, of this panel coming together under the umbrella of these multi-societies was to uh, review the literature and come up with recommendations geared towards Center for Medicare and Medicaid uh, services to change their reimbursement criteria. Because, you know, the reimbursement criteria that we currently follow and the durable medical equipment providers have to follow are from 1998. Oh, uh, wow. Okay. Yeah, it's been a while. And, and the argument was there's been advances in, in the field in terms of devices, in terms of monitoring for gas exchange with transcutaneous and tidal CO2. Uh, there's all these different devices now and volume targeted pressure support, AVAPs, IVAPs, so on and so forth. And research, you know, clinical trials in COPD, clinical trials in OHS and whatnot. So maybe it's time to, you know, revisit how Medicare comes up with these criteria for reimbursement, which many of us believe to a large extent essentially handcuffs clinicians when they want to help their patients. Yeah, that's a really good way of, of saying it. Um, I remember some, um, some colleagues talking about how it gets so complicated, particularly for um, hospitalized patients, for example, to get an IV and they wound up kind of going to home vents. Indeed. Um, one of the things when Peter Gay and Bob Owens were leading this group of technical experts, one of their one of the goals was to publish our findings in terms of search of the literature and the data. And, and we published five papers in the journal Chess, which was around November of 2021, that would serve as a background for the documents we were going to send um, to CMS Okay. in terms of our advocacy. And one of the things they asked us to do, which I thought was quite astute, was to provide um, for each 
case, like my mind was focused on obesity hypoventilation. What are the pain points? And do a clinical vignette. And in that, if anybody reads that paper that was published in Chess, we actually talk about, I describe a clinical vignette of a patient of mine who was hospitalized and how difficult it was to discharge that patient on a form of therapy that we know it was going to work, you know, bi-level device with a backup rate, um, even without doing a polysomnogram. Mm. But if you want to qualify that patient for a device like that, a bi-level with a backup rate or without a backup rate, you have to go through a lot of motions yes. that, current, that the current CMS reimbursement criteria have in place. And in that article, we point out these pain points of why this is problematic. I'm glad you're tackling that because it is, it is so problematic. You know, it just seems like there's so many, you know, depending on which pathway you want to go, right, to get to get this device, there's so many steps. Correct. And that and you know, that example that I that I put in the in the study, which I think if anybody reads it, they'll identify it very quickly because they'll say, "Oh, that looks like all my patients." <laughs> uh, it's not something unique and and and, and <laughs> usual case. It's a very common case that most of us who practice, you know, hospital medicine or inpatient care, we see them. But you know, first you have to demonstrate that CPAP failed. Then you have to demonstrate that bi-level without a backup rate failed. Then you need spirometry to rule out COPD. Then they ask for a blood gas upon awakening, which can you imagine like you're that one's so there hard. for the patient to wake yes. up and stick him with a needle to get an arterial blood gas. Doesn't make any sense. No. So it's very hard to do that. And and I think clinicians and physicians want to do what's best for their patients. So they realize that there's a loophole and they can prescribe home non-invasive mechanical ventilators, you know, mm -hmm. like your typical Astral or Trilogy, Evo mm -hmm. Trilogy, which are very, very expensive. But the criteria to get one of those is much simpler. You just have to demonstrate that somebody is hypercapnic. Yeah. You know? And so, you know, it got to the point that the Office of Inspector General, which is an office within the Health and Human Services Department, started questioning why is there a spike in, you know, prescriptions of home ventilators. Ah, and to be honest with you, I don't think that was because people are trying to commit fraud. I think people are realizing that I can't get this patient to come to the sleep lab anytime soon. Right. I can't do all these things that are required to give him a BiPAP machine, but heck, I can give him a ventilator. <laughs> and I think an ventilator is going to be great, so let me prescribe it. <laughs> well, and that's it. It's an unintended consequence, right? Like we're exactly. trying to do, but sometimes it's just so hard to navigate and it's just physically like we're asking our patients to do so much that you're right sometimes you do have to take the path of least resistance in fact i i, I totally agree with you and in the clinical vignette that i described it was a case where uh it was actually a real patient of mine that the patient we fixed the patient in the icu the patient got better went to the general medicine floors and then when it was time for discharging the patient the general medicine floor people reached out to me and said, hey, listen, I want to give this patient BiPAP so they can go home based on the data you've published. And I'm <laughs> like, that's great. Yeah. They said, well, well but, but we can't. We have to do all these things. I'm like, well, why don't you discharge a patient and have them come to my clinic and I'll try to squeeze her in my clinic soon. Mm. And then what ended up happening is that the patient, you know, some of these patients have a lot of issues going on. It's hard for them to get mobilized. Yeah. She was very severely obese and she ended up missing the appointment. And she got readmitted in oh, a few no. months 
And then the second time that she got admitted for the same condition, acute on chronic hypercapnic respiratory failure, the team said, well, this time we're going to prescribe a ventilator. Yeah. And that's what happens for yeah. many of our patients, unfortunately. I get that. I get that. So let's take a short break. And when we come back, we'll talk more about obesity hypoventilation syndrome. You're listening to Talking Sleep from the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. Prepare for the future of sleep medicine at Sleep Medicine Disruptors 2023, November 3rd through 4th. This hybrid course will provide a unique and virtual learning experience exploring the disruptive innovations altering the healthcare and sleep medicine landscape. Registrants can attend either virtually or in person at the Amesville Hotel in Silicon Valley, California. Register today at aasm.org forward slash events. Welcome back to Talking Sleep. We're talking with Dr. Moklesi about obesity, hypoventilation, and the current clinical guidelines. You, you know, very clearly talked about this, you know, acute, this hospitalization, this acute on chronic hypercapnic uh, ventilatory failure. Uh, and you talked about how the OIG got involved. So tell me more about that. Yeah. So I want to say it was around 2016 uh, or so uh, that this spike in prescription of home non-invasive ventilators came under radar. Or maybe it was a little bit before that, but you know, the Office of Inspector General, one of the things that they do, any anytime they see a spike in anything that is unusual, they start looking into it. Uh, and it makes sense. I think they should do that. And right. um, one of the concerns was, is this um, some sort of fraud and people trying to commit Medicare fraud for, you know, just obtaining extra reimbursements. Right. And and along those lines, in 2020, there was a, uh, you know, the federal government sued um, Apria, which was one of, is one of the larger and, you know, durable medical equipment provider companies that has presence nationally, is not a local DME company. And one of the arguments used against them was that they are um, prescribing or they're maybe promoting prescription of these devices um, when another simpler device, say CPAP or BiPAP, would have sufficed. Um, and also, you know, patients getting these devices and not using them, and nonetheless, the DME company continued to build oh, Medicare sure. or Medicaid. Yeah. And I think that lawsuit was settled um, by Apria, and, you know, they probably didn't want to go to court, or I don't know what the circumstances was, but it was settled, and they... They paid um, the government, um, but the point is that um, you know it's very curious because if you really think about it, these home non-invasive mechanical ventilators are a perpetual rent system in CMS yes. Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, and is a very good service for patients who really need it. Say the neuromuscular patient, yes, where because it's a bundled care, it includes. Is almost a thousand dollars that the DME companies receive on a monthly basis every month from CMS, but the package includes not only the device at the patient's home, but a robust uh, respiratory therapy services. So when patients have issues, they can go to the patient's home and help them. Right. Um, so, so I can appreciate why it would be expensive because there's a lot of resources and manpower or woman power that goes into it. Right. 
in terms of respiratory therapists making home visits. But if a patient doesn't need it, they don't need the home visits. Or if the machine is sitting in their closet and they're not using it, they're still billing uh, CMS $1,000 a month, roughly. Right. And, and I think that's a challenge because you would think that these devices would also have adherence criteria, meaning similar mm -hmm. to CPAP and BiPAP, if you don't use it, they stop reimbursing you know, the DME providers. But the home ventilators do not have adherence criteria. And the reason they don't have adherence criteria is because the argument is that it's a life-sustaining device. Right. Yeah. Right? Yep. But when you prescribe it for, you know, non-neuromuscular patients who, for whom they know they don't need it for life sustainment, sort of speak, right. then you, you get into this, you know, muddy area, you know, do you really need that device and is it really fraud or not? Right. You know, that's a challenge, I think. No, it is. It is. And, and I mean, and that's it, right? It kind of makes, I mean, it makes me really apprehensive. <laughs> Yeah. Like, okay, hang on. <laughs> and, that was the, and that was the argument with the unmap that we did. And, and our mantra was, we want to give as physicians, do right by our patients, mm -hmm. give our patients, the right patient, the right device at the right time. And the argument we were making to, and our, we're, we're continuing to make to Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services as we're advocating for our patients is that, listen, um, they, this patient getting discharged from the hospital would benefit from a advanced device. And then in two, three months, they'll come to the sleep lab and we'll do a sleep study and maybe we can switch them to CPAP. Right. Maybe we can switch them to BiPAP. But what do we do in that transition period? Because one of the concerns is that patients can experience bad outcomes in those few months that are waiting to come to the sleep lab or to the sleep clinic. Yes. And how can we bridge them? And our argument was there's a good chance that if you approve these devices, cheaper devices earlier, you'll end up saving. And the CMS and the government may end up saving money because people may not need to prescribe home mechanical ventilators that are very expensive. Well, and that's a very good point. I mean, it's very logical. I like to think so. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, how have these guidelines changed compared to the previous guidelines? Well, I mean, there was no specific guideline for obesity hypoventilation syndrome um, until we put the first one together in 2019. Mm -hmm. And I'll be honest with you, it was, an, it was the first time I led a guideline group, so it was an eye-opening experience mm -hmm. uh, because some of it is, of course, evidence-based and literature-based, but then you get to areas that are unclear, and of course, it becomes a lot of expert opinion. Um, and then you have all these experts in the room, and you're trying to reach consensus. So that's always a fun process. <laughs> um, but we started this process in 2016. And it was an activity, of course, sponsored by the American Thoracic Society. Mm. And it took three years to get the, the document published. So putting the guidelines together, I learned, is not an easy task. And it will need updating. But right. this was the first guidelines, as far as I know, that specifically addressed obesity hypoventilation syndrome. And hopefully in a few years, we can update it. So, you know, you mentioned um, during our conversation previously that your concern was obviously this high incidence of pulmonary hypertension, right, in this population. So does that kind of light a fire for you? I mean, how does that impact your management decisions? Yes. And um, yeah, it's, it's very interesting because, you know, um, every five years, uh, the European society that works on, on you know, uh, guidelines for pulmonary hypertension 
puts out a new statement. So in their 2013 statement, sleep disorder breathing was in group three pulmonary hypertension was still listed. In 20, uh, I want to say it was 2018 iteration, they removed sleep disorder breathing. They just left hypoventilation syndromes in group three pulmonary hypertension. And in the last iteration that came out in 20, 2022, uh, these are the guidelines for pulmonary hypertension, they still left obstructive sleep apnea out and they just left hypoventilation. The fact is that obesity hypoventilation is a major risk factor for pulmonary hypertension and corpulmonale. Yeah. Um, in, the, in the Pickwick trial, what we notice is that 10% of the population, of the patients enrolled in the study, at the time of enrollment, it was known that they have pulmonary hypertension uh, based on 10%. medical records and whatnot. Okay. But then once they underwent at least echocardiography as part of this study, half of the patients had evidence of pulmonary hypertension defined by you know, right ventricular systolic pressure by echo above 40 millimeters. Oh, wow. Okay. Quite prevalent. Okay. Okay. So tell me about the guidelines and, and if you think there are any gaps in evidence. You know, you mentioned, you mentioned expert opinion. <laughs> yeah. And, and I think uh, one of the areas that I think we need more studies is specifically the subgroup of patients that gets hospitalized. Mm -hmm. um, because what we did for the guidelines, we, there was no study specifically looking at this patient population. So what we did is we reached out to authors of papers um, who had a subset of patients enrolled in their study who were hospitalized and asked them to share that data with us. And then we compiled all that data of individual patients from different studies into a what's called an individual patient-level data meta-analysis. Um, and, and that data suggested that these patients who are hospitalized, those who are discharged without you know, some form of PAP therapy, and most of them were non-invasive ventilation, um, those discharged without non-invasive ventilation had worse outcomes at three months and six months after oh, hospital wow. discharge in terms of mortality. The problem is that at the end of the day, these are all are these are not this was not designed to answer that question. And I think there's a lot of bias there. So the where the truth lies, do these patients that are getting discharged from the hospital after an acute exacerbation of OHS or acute on chronic hypercapnic respiratory failure, if they survive hospitalization and it comes time to discharge, I, am I confident that if they get discharged without NIV? to have increased mortality at three months, I'm not confident because huh. I think the data is weak and okay. the level of evidence is low. And that's what we put in the guidelines because we don't have any clinical trials um, examining this question. I think that's an important gap in the literature. Mm. So do you have advice for us to how to get these devices covered for this population? Um, I wish I had. Uh, <laughs> well, this is this is how my career has has evolved. I'll be honest with you. Mm. In the early two thousands, I just you know when I was working in a public hospital here in Chicago, the famous Cook County Hospital, as a young attending physician, I was encountering a lot of patients of low socioeconomic status who had severe obesity and suffering from obesity hypoventilation, and that's how I got interested in this condition because I saw all these patients. And I noticed there's not a oh, lot of sure. literature. And that's how we started our, our, our research. 
And then we got into clinical trials and we got into guidelines and all that is nice and, you know, good. But at the end of the day, I felt like after all these years of doing this work, I'm not able to move the needle for my patients. And that's yeah. where I got really involved um, with, you know, my colleagues for the UNMAP to start advocating. So the, I think my career has gone from, you know, clinical studies, case reports, clinical trials, guidelines. And now I'm kind of in that maybe last phase of advocacy because these um, reimbursement criteria that, and I like to call them reimbursement criteria because many of my colleagues call them um, CMS or Medicare guidelines. They're not guidelines, they're reimbursement criteria. The reimbursement criteria that CMS uses is very restrictive. Yes. And when it, when they came up with it in 1998, that's the best they had. I think it's time to update them. And that was our goal. And that's what we're advocating for. And we're literally advocating Congress and CMS to come up with different rules for national coverage and local coverage determination. But it's not easy. It's not an easy task. No, it, no, it's really not. You know, this actually reminds me of a conversation we had with some of our um pediatric colleagues. And and I didn't realize this, but CPAP isn't FDA approved for the really, you know, the wee little ones. And so then they would have to script home ventilators for this population. And, and then this was really hard, you know, it was expensive and it was hard for parents and it was like scary, right? For parents yeah. of these tiny little children that now have to go home on a ventilator. And then there was all this insurance stuff. And so they, um, they had a lot of, you know, they were trying to do a lot of advocacy work and so much of their day was just sort of eaten up with insurance. And um, and so that was a good reminder with the pediatric population about how important advocacy is. And it sounds like that's what you are encouraging us to do as well. 100%. I think for those of us who are in the trenches and see patients and take care of patients, either in the hospital or in the clinic, we all know how much red tape there is, right? Yeah. Prior authorizations, peer-to-peer. -peer. I mean, how much resources are we wasting between ourselves and our staff where we could be doing more meaningful things for our patients? So it's a problematic, you know, uh, medical, you know, healthcare system that we have. I mean, there's a lot of excellence. There's a lot of great things, you know, and, you know, we have top-notch physicians, top-notch technology, great research, but there, there, there's room for improvement. Yeah. No question about it. There's room for improvement here. Well, and you're putting out literature, you know, out into the world, right? You're putting the stuff out there so that it is easier for them to read too. You know, that was kind of like what they had to do with the CPAP for the little kids too, is they Indeed. had to say, you know, yes, we understand that this is not technically FDA cleared. However, in the hands of a, you know, sleep physician that has been trained to use it, we feel that they are safe. And so I feel like it's it's this multi-level conversation, right? It's it's patients and clinicians and it's respiratory and it's DME and it's payers. And and so by you putting out these guidelines, I think that helps um, it helps everybody sort of be part of the conversation and to reference something that's out there in a in a peer-reviewed forum. Correct. And, and I'll tell you, um, one of the things that was important for us as part of the ATS guidelines was to have a patient voice. And in fact, one of the one of the members of the panel was a patient. Oh, that's wonderful. Because it's always, yeah, it was always it's always interesting to get their perspective because yes. many times, you know, we are kind of pontificating but not recognizing the hardships that they have to go through. So one of the 
things we're trying to deal with is that, okay, these are clinical questions that we have. And, you know, we actually initially came up with a list of 19, 20 questions. Of course, we didn't have the bandwidth of addressing every single one of them. So as a group, we had to prioritize mm-hmm. which of these questions can we include in the guidelines, at least in the first iteration of it. And we also wanted to get feedback from, you know, like a patient advocate or a patient, like, do these questions make sense to you? Um, but it's an interesting process. So what about the elephant in the room then? What about the Phillips recall? How has that uh, impacted our options? Well, that's just created more pain <laughs> about it. It has. Not only for us, but I, I would say mostly for our patients. Yes, agreed. Um, I have so many sad stories of patients who are using their devices. And of course, they read somewhere on the, on the news or at, elsewhere that, you know, there's something dangerous about this device, don't use it. And they just stop using it. Yeah. Many of them kind of took it as a green light. Well, I don't need it anymore. Right. <laughs> Instead of trying to get their device, their device exchange. And I've had other patients who, you know, want to use the device. They're getting, they're deriving benefit from it, but they just can't get any because it wasn't, you know, as you know better than I do, you know, major national and international shortage of yeah. devices. No, you're exactly right. So what about other than machines and PAP and NIV, what about medications like acetazolamide? Yes, um, that's an area that, uh, you know, going back to your earlier point, what areas are remain unclear or there are gaps? That I, I would say that's a, an, another important one because, you know, pharmacologically speaking, acetazolamide could work mm. and, and it does work for some of our patients, but nobody has really done a systematic you know, a well-designed study to address that question. So that's an open area. I mean, pathophysiologically speaking, I think it works. And many of us who've used it, um, you know, know that it works. Mm. But we don't have, you know, long-term data uh, in terms of, you know, overall after two, three years, like what happens to these patients? Do they stop taking it because of side effects and paresthesias? Oh, sure. Or, or do they keep taking it? Should it be a supplement or an, an or an add-on to pap therapy? Mm. Or or should it be a standalone, you know, intervention? Those are all questions that remain unanswered. So any final thoughts? Yeah, and, and, and you know, you know, when you said, um, um, you know, the final thought, it just reminded me of the main thing that gets them there, which is obesity. Mm. And I think it's important for us as clinicians, you know, working in sleep clinics, not to ignore the obesity, either regardless of whether the patient has obstructive sleep apnea or obesity hypomyelation syndrome, that needs to be addressed, particularly in our patients who are severely obese, you know, with body mass indices above 40 and whatnot. Um, you know, and, and I think in the, in the past, you know, if you think about it a decade ago or so, our options were really lifestyle changes, which for the most part is not sustainable mm-hmm. or variety of bariatric procedures, you know, weight reduction surgery, which, you know, do well. Most patients do well with those and have very good outcomes. And, you know, I think the jury is in, in terms of what happens with bariatric surgery, there's less cardiovascular death. There's longevity goes up, diabetes gets better. So there's a lot of good data that have, that has emerged in the last decade or so. Um, but more recently, as you know, these new uh, medications 
um, you the know, GLP the GLP one, one yeah. yeah, agonists um, are, I think, really showing, you know, significant level of effectiveness. I mean, many of these studies that I've seen, you know, large RCTs, randomized clinical trials, have shown close to 20 to 25% weight loss when you get to the adequate dose of the medication. You know, they have to, sometimes these doses need to be adjusted, you know, terzepidide or, you know, uh, or other ones out there. As the dose is adjusted and the patient tolerates it, um, in, you know, in a span of a year, year and a few months, these patients at the highest dose can lose, you know, 20%, 25% of their weight. And the average weight in these studies is around 104 kgs. Wow. So if somebody is losing 20 to 25 kilograms, you're talking about 50 pound weight loss. Yeah. And that could move the needle in terms of getting to the point that at least they may still have obstructive sleep apnea, but they may no longer have obesity hypoventilation. So do you prescribe these medications in your clinic? I wish I could. (laughs) (laughs) So one of our colleagues, he does um, sleep medicine and he also has an obesity medicine sort of practice. And so, and he did his fellowship and, and did his boards and everything. And similar to you, you know, he was inspired by the patients that he saw and he would tell them to lose weight, but then he was like, okay, I need to do better than just say lose weight. I need to help them better. And that's kind of what led him to this. Um, and so um, I attended a seminar maybe a year ago and we had a bariatric surgeon that actually told us that we should be thinking about prescribing these out of a sleep practice. I think that's a great advice and I'm glad you brought it up because weight reduction clinics, which exists in most institutions, they're overwhelmed. And it's like asking all diabetes to be managed by endocrinologists. Yeah. At some point, they just can't do it or all hypothyroidism. So, but many of us, unfortunately, we have a PAP-centric view of the world. Everything is PAP, CPAP, yep. BiPAP, and we we ignore the underlying problem. Well, I would argue we have an OSA-centric point of view, right? You could even argue that, yes. We're not just OSA medicine, we're sleep medicine. There's a lot more to it. Exactly, exactly. And 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 I I I I um you know I'm encouraged to hear that your colleague is doing that. One of my fellows um a couple of years ago actually also um was gonna do training in obesity medicine um to become boarded in it, to have this, you know, practice where you're doing obesity management as well as um sleep yeah. apnea. So I think, you know, it, management of patients. I'm learning over the years has to be multidisciplinary in nature and obesity should be something we want to tackle, or at least if we don't feel comfortable, refer to patients. Yeah. No, I think you're exactly right. At least we can start the conversation. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. You've given us some really solid guidance on how to better identify those with obesity hypoventilation syndrome and how to get them on appropriate treatment. And you've also kind of reiterated the importance of advocacy. So thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to Talking Sleep, brought to you by the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. For more podcast episodes, please visit our website at aasm.org. You can also subscribe through your favorite podcast service. And if you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to leave a rating or review. For more feedback or suggestions, email us at podcast at aasm.org. I hope you'll join us again for more Talking Sleep. 
Until next time, this is Seema Kosla, encouraging you to sleep well so you can live well. <laughs>